Hello, and welcome to Unbabbled, a podcast that navigates the world of special education, communication delays, and learning differences. We are your hosts, Stephanie Landis and Meredith Crummel, and we're certified speech-language pathologists who spend our days at the parish school in Houston, helping children find their voices and connect with the world around them. Did you know that an estimated 1 in 59 children in the U.S. have a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder, with an increase to 1 in 37 for boys? However, even with such high prevalence, autism continues to be a confusing, overwhelming, and often misunderstood diagnosis. In this episode, Dr. Kathy Gutentag speaks to us about autism spectrum disorder. Dr. Gutentag is a licensed clinical child psychologist and an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the Children's Learning Institute at the University of Texas Health Science Center at Houston. She specializes in providing diagnostic and developmental evaluations to infants and children with possible or diagnosed autism spectrum disorder. She has expertise in testing very young children and in working collaboratively with parents to determine intervention plans and approaches. During our chat, we discuss what autism spectrum disorder is, red flags for parents and educators to look for, and resources for parents, including where to obtain an evaluation, what to expect during an evaluation, and which therapies are often recommended. We also discuss common misconceptions people often associate with autism. Welcome. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Kathy Gutentag. Welcome to the podcast. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Today, we'll be focusing on autism and autism spectrum disorders. Can you give us a little bit of background on your experience with autism? Sure. I am a clinical child psychologist at the University of Texas, part of the Children's Learning Institute and the clinic which is called the Center for Autism and Related Conditions. And I have been in practice since um, about 2001 and have been seeing children with autism for many years. <laughs> and we primarily focus on at our clinic on um, early diagnosis and giving parents recommendations and referrals for where to go to get the best help for their children. You said that one of the areas you specialize in is early diagnosis. Can you give us a few red flags or things for people to look out for in early childhood? Sure. Um, you know, research is showing that earlier and earlier we can start to look for atypical development in very young children. Um, some children are showing um, differences in their development as early as one year old. Sometimes there is a change in children's development between 18 months and two years old. And some of the very early things that we look for are things like eye contact, interest in social communication with other people. Do they look at you? Do they smile back at you when you smile? Um, are they showing interest in other children and their siblings, watching what's going on around them? We may also see language delay where children are not babbling or not starting to form real words. And sometimes we see an area of regression where maybe a child was saying a few words, starting to point, starting to use gestures, and then they stop um, or lose some of the skills that they had. That's certainly a red flag when that happens. We also may see repetitive behaviors, either repetitive behaviors that they do with their hands and arms, such as flapping their arms or um, twiddling or wiggling their fingers or staring at their hands. We might see spinning around in circles. We might see repetitive jumping and bouncing. And 
Then also children may do repetitive behaviors with objects. They may play with toys in a very repetitive way where they just want to stack things up or they just want to put things in a line instead of playing with them in the functional and pretend ways that most children would play. So some of those things are, are maybe early signs of autism. And things like smiling and watching mom and dad or brother and sister and that joint attention of eye contact, what age does that typically develop in kids? Well, really, you should start to see joint attention before age one, and it should be very solid by age one. Joint attention basically means looking at the person and then looking back to something that they're that you're showing interest in, pointing, uh, following eye gaze, that, that kind of triangular interaction where you and the baby are looking and, and focusing and commenting on the same thing at the same time. Yeah. So you can start to see these signs really, really uh, early, even in the first year of life. Yeah, oftentimes kids develop um, gestural language and communication before they start talking with the pointing and waving and can not doing some of those gestures be an early sign? Absolutely. Most children are waving bye-bye by around one year old. Uh, They are starting to point also around one year or a little later. If children are not developing those gestural nonverbal communication skills, then that's something that we want to pay attention to as well. And if a child is showing some of these signs or if a parent is concerned, where should they go or what should they do? Well, the first thing I would say is to start to document your concerns, write them down so that you have a little running list of things that are really specific that you can say to whomever you're going to consult with. The first stop is often your pediatrician. You don't even have to wait till a well child checkup. If you don't have one coming up very soon, contact your pediatrician's office and ask for uh, an appointment just to talk about your developmental concerns. Pediatricians will do that even if you're not due for a checkup. And then if your pediatrician refers you to early childhood intervention or child psychologist or a developmental pediatrician, then you may need to follow up and make sure that that appointment happens, that you are being scheduled, that you are getting in to see that specialist. Sometimes pediatricians can be a little conservative. They may want you to wait and see. They may provide reassurance. And if you still feel like your concerns are not being heard or your pediatrician is not taking you seriously, then you need to be an advocate for your child. You need to speak up again. You need to ask specifically for a referral. You are also able to contact Early Childhood Intervention, ECI, which is a free public service to have your child evaluated. And I can give you that resource link for how parents can find their local ECI program and make their own referral. Um, There is also a website called mchat.org, M-C-H-A-T, And the MCHAT is a little screening measure that parents can fill out online, again, for free, that will ask you about certain early signs that may indicate that your child should have a full evaluation for autism. And that's something that parents can do proactively if they have a concern. Parents, uh, pediatricians should also be screening with the MCHAT at the 18-month well-child visit and at the 24-month well-child visit so that they will know whether there are some red flags in this child that warrant um, a referral to a specialist. 
I love that point of starting to document and write things down. I don't think that anybody's mentioned that previously. And it is so helpful because you get into the appointment and you're talking and your kids walking around and trying to dive off of the table and you forget all of the things and they ask and you're like, oh, well, they're kind of not doing this. And if you write it down, then you have things and bullet points that you can specifically ask. I know a few times I've gone into the pediatrician with like two questions written down and I'm like, I cannot let myself leave until I ask these questions. And I also, like that you said to continue to be your own advocate part of the thing with going into the pediatrician especially at such a young age like a year 18 months there tends to be a big range of you know normal quote unquote and I think that pediatricians often are a little more on the conservative side just because it is really young to you know frighten parents or bring up a concern if there isn't one are there any specific things that you think for parents are a little more of a high indicator that there probably is something going on than just some of the other areas that are have a little more leeway sure I think one thing that is always always a concern is if your child has lost any skills if there's any regression if your child was saying words Um, or using gestures, and then they stop, or they used to smile and do little baby games with you, like peekaboo and patty cake, and then they lose interest in that social connection, that's a really big concern that a pediatrician should take seriously. And then any other delays in the social engagement, you know, there certainly is a wide range of, of normal and typical in terms of at what age children are saying their first words or starting to combine words. We have ranges but they're fairly broad. But social engagement should really be there during the first year of life. They should show interest in other people. They should smile when you smile back at them by just a couple months old. And if you see your child being very flat emotionally, not really responding when you talk to them, not responding to their name. That's another big red flag. Children should be responding to their name well before one year old. And if you call your child's name and they're tuning you out and you think, well, maybe my child can't hear, uh, it's often recommended to get a hearing assessment to make sure that that's not what's causing your child to be unresponsive. So audiology testing may be indicated. But if it's not your child's hearing and they are responding to other kinds of sounds around them, but not their name and not social engagement, then that's those are really serious concerns that you want to take seriously. Can you tell us what is autism? So autism is considered a neurodevelopmental disorder, which means it has to do with the way the brain is wired up and how the brain develops connections between neurons over time. And it is thought to be largely a genetic condition. There's lots of research going on to look at Are there environmental factors? Are there factors with maternal age, with what happens during pregnancy, uh, with genetic predispositions? But it's definitely a condition that is seems to be present early on, maybe even prenatally, and that manifests over the first few years of life. Now, sometimes children don't get diagnosed until a little later in development if their symptoms are more mild, if they are developing language, if they are doing well cognitively, then maybe those more subtle aspects of autism don't get picked up until later. But it is still uh, something that is happening within the brain developmentally and has 
two major components, the, the social language, the social communication, the eye contact, all those social features, and then um, rote, repetitive behaviors and narrow interests. And so we look at both of those broad categories when we look at diagnosis. You mentioned that it's genetic and or that there's research indicating that it could be genetic. Um, a lot of my friends and family ask me, what causes autism? Do we know? Do we know what causes autism? That's certainly the million-dollar question these days, and everybody would like to know the answer, and that's one of the frequent questions that I get. Uh, and what I try to tell parents is certain things we know that do not cause autism. It does not have to do with whether mom went back to work, uh, whether uh, you put your child in front of a TV or not. Um, it, it, it is not caused by parenting, except in the most extreme cases of neglect or a child being in an orphanage where they got no attention and stimulation. But really, classic autism is thought to be a biological condition and not something that was caused by uh, anything that a parent um, did or was neglectful about. Um, so we don't know 100% um, what causes autism. There are a number of genes that they think are involved in autism. There are a few identifiable syndromes, such as fragile X, uh, tuberous sclerosis, some chromosomal microdeletion syndromes that have a high correspondence with autism. So Sometimes genetic testing does reveal why this particular child has autism, and so we do routinely recommend genetics testing. However, there are a lot of kids for whom the cause is not yet known, uh, and that further research needs to uh, be done in order to really be able to fine-tune the testing that would identify why each particular child has developed autism. You mentioned that one of the signs of autism could be regression of skills. I have heard through different parenting websites or just word of mouth that some people are worried because around the same time they're getting some of the vaccines that the kids start to have regressions. Have you seen research that supports this idea? Actually, research is quite clear at this point. There's been lots of large-scale epidemiological studies from multiple countries, from multiple cohorts, that are all showing that vaccines do not cause autism, and that is, that is not a good reason not to vaccinate your child. There's a lot of misinformation that is still out there. Um, there is a lot of concern that's been generated by people who either were fraudulent physicians or not physicians at all. Uh, and then, unfortunately, these myths and incorrect information gets circulated, and it's pretty scary. And I can understand why parents would not want to do anything that might increase the risk of autism. But in this case, the research is very, very clear that vaccines are not the answer, and it is not a good thing to avoid vaccinating your child due to concern about autism. One of the things you mentioned in the diagnosis is that sometimes children um, may not have as clear cut of social symptoms or language symptoms, and then they often get diagnosed later. I know that the diagnosis for autism has changed where there used to be a separate category of Asperger's. Can you talk a little bit about the diagnostic codes now? In 2013, the new version of the Diagnostic Manual for Psychiatrists and Psychologists, which is called the DSM-5, came out, and they made some major changes in how they wrote the section on diagnostic 
diagnosing autism. And while we used to have multiple separate diagnostic categories, such as autistic disorder, Asperger's disorder, PDD-NOS, now they have done away with those separate categories, and everybody is under the broad umbrella term, which is called autism spectrum disorder. So that includes children who may be very high-functioning and may have gotten a diagnosis of Asperger's in the past, and also children who are much more impaired and would have gotten an autistic disorder diagnosis in the past. So you will still see a lot of those terms floating around because there were books written and podcasts and and all Mm -hmm. kinds of popular literature that uses Asperger's, that uses PDD-NOS, but the most current term now is autism spectrum disorder or ASD. And who can diagnose ASD? So it should be a professional who has a lot of experience working with children with autism and uh, who has training in the diagnostic process. So it could be a developmental pediatrician. It could be a child psychologist. It could be a neuropsychologist. It could be um, a neurologist, a pediatric neurologist, and sometimes general pediatricians will put that diagnosis down in their records, but usually they want it verified by somebody who has specific expertise in that area. If a parent is coming to receive an evaluation, what kind of things would they expect to have um, done with their child? So it varies a little bit depending on what the model for that clinic is, but certainly they can expect a very thorough um, parent interview that's going to ask them a lot of questions about not only their child's current behaviors and the parent's current concerns about their child, but also what was their history like. So this is where documenting your concerns and writing down, when did my child actually start Um, to say her first words. When did my child smile? When did my child um, show interest in little baby games like peekaboo or patty cake? Um, Those are the kinds of things that are really helpful information because the person interviewing you will likely and should ask you lots of detailed information about not only what does your child do now, but what do you remember about your child's infancy and toddlerhood? And was there ever a time when uh, things changed for them and they lost skills? You will also probably be asked about any previous evaluations that you've had and what the results of those were, any previous treatment or interventions that your child has had, your child's school experience or daycare experience, and any important family changes that have happened that could also explain atypical behavior. Did you have any traumatic events happen? Was this child born in another country and adopted? Were there any uh, losses or or, uh, significant things that would account for a regression in behavior or um, atypical development in your child? You will also be asked about biological factors, whether the child was exposed to any drugs or alcohol during pregnancy. Was the child born on time? Were there any complications early in infancy? Your child's health history uh, is important as well. So there's the parent interview part. And then we also want to, of course, take a direct look at the child. And there are lots of different ways that we do that. Unfortunately, there is no laboratory test right now that's foolproof for autism. So you won't go in and get a blood test to tell you whether your child has autism, nor will you get an MRI, a brain scan that will definitively tell you whether your child has autism. And if someone tries to tell you that they do, that's really not well validated by research. 
what we do is look very closely at the child in a variety of contexts. So how do they play by themselves when you give them age-appropriate toys? What do they do with toys? How do they engage with mom or dad? Uh, How do they engage with a friendly new adult? Um, Sometimes there is standardized testing involved. They may look at the child's development overall by doing some developmental testing to look at your child's cognitive level, look at your child's language level, um, or to look specifically in a more structured way at your child's interpersonal interactions and play skills through uh, an assessment measure such as the ADOS-2. But there is no one definitive test at this point for autism, including the ADOS. Everything has to be taken all together. Um, You can also expect to probably fill out some questionnaires about your child that asks you systematically to rate different behaviors you may or may not see in your child so that we have a variety of documentation methods, a variety of assessment methods to get sort of a 360 look at what is your child doing um, and how are they progressing compared to what would be expected for your child's age level. If the child's in school, do you often reach out to the school to get their input? I do. And that will vary, again, from practitioner to practitioner. But I often find it helpful, especially if I don't have a lot of documentation from the school. If I do, if I can get a look at um, school records, daycare records, I often ask parents to bring those with them, share everything that they've already got. But if, particularly if the child is kind of a, a complex case where maybe I'm not seeing as much of what the parents are reporting, um, or the parent is having difficulty reporting on what they uh, what the child does in school in different settings. I will often uh, make a phone call to a teacher at school at childcare and get their direct perspective on what is this child doing with peers uh, in a group setting, which is something that I can't see in the office. And if a child does meet the requirements for a diagnosis of autism, then what are the next steps for that parents? What types of interventions would you recommend to a family? Okay. So there are lots of different recommendations depending on how old the child is, what kind of services the child is already getting. Frankly, some of it is um, is limited a little bit by the financial situation of the family and whether they have insurance. So there are many different treatment options uh, and educational options for children, and it does depend on a number of factors. First of all, what's most appropriate for that child? Is this a child who can handle being in a group kind of school situation with many other children with a little support, or are they a child who needs more one-on-one, more intensive intervention, and that they were, they're not ready to benefit from being in a group situation yet? There are therapies that hopefully are covered by insurance. It also is going to depend on the parent's financial situation, what kind of insurances are covered. But we very often recommend speech therapy. That's almost always a recommendation because very often children have delays in language, either in the expressive area, meaning what they can say and communicate themselves, in the receptive area, what they understand of what people say to them and how well they understand things like facial expressions and gestures that other people use. And then in the pragmatics domain, which is the social aspects of language, uh, how much do they understand about being able to read other people's facial expressions, about... um, body language and understanding how to take turns as a speaker and a listener and so forth. So there are lots of different reasons why speech therapy may be recommended. 
Um, some children really need a kind of therapy called ABA or applied behavior analysis, and that is a very intensive one-on-one kind of therapy that can be done in the clinic or in in the home at times, and that is really a, a wonderful and very well-validated research-proven method of working on children's basic learning skills, uh, how to sit and attend and follow through with a task, follow directions, refrain from uh, distracting behaviors or um, behaviors that are not very adaptive for learning, such as having tantrums or falling out on the floor or refusing to do something. There's lots of different skills uh, that ABA can work on. And um, so that's often recommended. That's something that is a little bit tricky because it's covered by some insurances and not others, although we hope that that's changing for Medicaid. Um, is supposed to cover it in the near future. Um, Occupational therapy is sometimes recommended. Occupational therapy can be very helpful for children who have sensory issues where they are very distracted or um, attracted to um, various things that they see or hear or want to touch or put in their mouths or if they have a real strong need for deep pressure or um, physical stimulation and activity. Occupational therapy can be very helpful. Uh, And then specialized educational placements, Um, depending on, again, what parents have available to them. We may recommend that a more specialized school setting would be beneficial to the child. Other times they can get what they need from the public school system with some advocacy, with some special education services to help them make best of use of their educational instruction. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of great options, but also very dependent on each child's need, which can probably be very overwhelming for parents at times, because just Googling what therapy do I do won't help you figure out what's specific for your child. For sure. Um, yeah. And, and hopefully when you get your evaluation, the person who is doing that evaluation or the team that's doing that evaluation should Uh, discuss that as a good part of the feedback that we don't want to have a practitioner who just says, your child has autism, Uh, come back in a year for follow-up. We really want to uh, ask for and be provided with really helpful um, recommendations for where do I go next, what kinds of schools or therapies would be best for my child, and how do I find those. When you are speaking with families after the evaluation and giving your feedback, what kind of questions do you commonly get from parents? I would say um, I often get asked the question that we were talking about earlier is what causes autism? Did I do something wrong? Is this something that could have been prevented? Uh, Because parents often have a lot of guilt, a lot of concern. And so I try to allay families' guilt because it's really not something that they could have prevented with the knowledge that we have now. So I know it's natural as a parent to feel like you would have wanted to prevent anything possible from happening to your child. It's something something that I often reassure families about. Another common question is, um, at what point will my child grow out of autism? Will they recover from this? Will they get better? And uh, how long is this going to continue? And what I tell families is that 
from what we know now, autism is a long-term type of disability. It is a, um, a developmental profile that typically takes a very long time and a lot of intervention to, um, to remediate, and that many children continue to have something atypical about their development and need some level of support for a very long time, sometimes even up into adulthood. Um, again, it really depends on the child's cognitive level. It depends on the child's language level overall severity. On the other hand, there are certainly children who, with good quality intervention, go on to higher education, go on to have jobs, go on to have families. There are many adults that we're just now learning about who may have an autism diagnosis and never knew it and never were uh, diagnosed in childhood. So by all means, we want to instill hope and optimism and the um, the prognosis, it's unknown at the very beginning, but as your child goes through treatment and you get a better sense of how rapidly they're responding to intervention, then over time we can get a better sense of what to expect for that child in the long term. But it is a long-term uh, concern and something that parents will have to be vigilant about and continue to work through intervention processes until such time as their child shows that they no longer need that level of support. Yeah. We have therapists on campus even that work with adults, and it's just as you age and develop and your interactions with people change and the amount of language you need to use changes that even into adulthood, sometimes they're successful people. They just continue to need a little bit of support navigating more tricky family relationships or work relationships or the workload and caseload. So yes, it's often a, a lifelong or long-term process. Absolutely. I also want to mention um, an another question that parents often ask is about younger siblings or older siblings, uh, but sometimes they notice things that are different in more than one child in their family. And we do know that uh, likely because of the genetic nature of the disorder that uh, we do want to keep a close eye on younger siblings, even if those children are still babies and don't have any diagnosis themselves. We do know that children who are siblings of children with a diagnosis of autism are at increased risk for autism, are at increased risk for language difficulties. Um, and so you do want to keep an eye on all the kids in the family and make sure to monitor their development and have evaluations for those children if there are signs of concern about siblings. Another type of intervention that can be very helpful for children on the autism spectrum is called social skills therapy. And social skills therapy uh, can be provided um, by speech therapists, um, sometimes special education professionals or behavior therapists. So social skills therapy helps children work on the ways that they engage with other children primarily. So usually that will involve having a small group of children who get together and work on fun projects together, play games, build Legos, do cooking projects. And during that play, the therapists are working with the children to help each other communicate, um, understand other children's communications, understand the way their behavior is impacting other kids, and really increase their level of insight and their level of skill at interacting as part of a peer group, which is something that many children with autism may struggle with. Yeah, we talk a lot on our campus about perspective taking, which just means understanding that other people have thoughts and feelings that are different from yours. And once you 
have that understanding, that theory of mind, that ability perspective take, it completely changes the way you socially interact with somebody. Because now instead of jumping in front of them to get candy first when you're trick-or-treating, which happened here last night, you realize that that's going to make your friends really mad <laughs> or that you might knock somebody down or that they're going to be angry with you. So instead you have that theory of mind perspective take and understand that even though it's, it's hard, you have to wait your turn and wait behind or while you're playing the give and take of play leads to the give and take in conversation and so that all starts at a very basic level of building that perspective taking so absolutely and you can be a kid or an adult who has very good language skills or very good cognitive skills you can be super smart and able to express yourself and yet those more subtle aspects of social interaction eye contact, how close do you stand to somebody when you're talking, how loud a voice do you use, how do you wait your turn in conversation, those things can still be very difficult uh, and really can benefit from some intervention. Understanding sarcasm, higher level language, yeah. Yep. 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 all of those things can be very good targets for, for support with social skills therapy. I want to um, ask you a little bit about hyperlexia. Um, we actually get a lot of questions about hyperlexia. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and what that might look like in children? Sure. So hyperlexia is a really interesting phenomenon, and we don't quite know where this comes from either. But what it means is that the child has very advanced reading skills for their age. Um, I have seen two-year-olds come in who are able to identify letters and read words. They may not know what it is that the words mean that they're saying. And so one of the concerns is that children with hyperlexia may not have the, um, the reading comprehension to go along with their ability to sort of call out words um, or read sentences. So it is this interesting phenomenon where children who may have delays in other areas, including delays in spoken language, seem to be just super readers. And it's kind of fascinating um, parents often get very excited about it. Uh, and um, I think what we need to know about it is that um, while it's really great to be able to read, and we certainly want to encourage uh, children to be able to read to their best ability, we have to take into account the context of, do they understand what they're reading? How does that fit with the rest of their overall language development and their overall academic and cognitive development? And kind of see it in context because sometimes it goes along with um, some other atypical developments. Yeah, so would you consider hyperlexia to be a red flag for autism? It can be. It's not one of the diagnostic criteria, um, but sometimes you do see that. And it's this discrepancy between how well the child can read and the rest of their language-related skills. Are there any other things that you see often go hand-in-hand hand with kids who might be diagnosed with the autism spectrum disorder and other areas? Sure. It's very common for children with autism to have delays in language, both in terms of spoken language, their expressive speech, and their receptive skills. 
um, and pragmatics, as we were talking about before, that social aspect of language. Um, we often see sensory issues where children are either very easily distressed by getting their hands dirty or by tags in clothing or by loud sounds. They may cover their ears when they hear loud sounds. Um, or they may be kind of sensory seeking. They may do a lot of jumping and bouncing and wanting to um, do a lot of wrestling and bumping into walls. Um, they may um, they may put things in their mouths that are not food. So um, we often do see sensory issues in children with autism. Picky eating is a big one for sure. Although I must say that there's a lot of picky eating in the general population as well. It's also normal for toddlers to go through a phase of decreased appetite in picky eating. So picky eating by itself is certainly not diagnostic of autism, and it, um, it is seen in kids who don't have other atypical behaviors as well. But it's often seen in kids with autism as well. Sometimes we see delays in general adaptive self-help skills as well. Children who are delayed in being able to fasten their clothing or brush their own teeth or um, get dressed, um, take care of their own needs to the extent that would be appropriate for their age. So there's often a number of delays that may go along with autism, but certainly every kid is different and there's a lot of diversity. So some children are strong in one area and weak in another. Are there any mental health areas that often go together with autism spectrum disorder? Anxiety is very often seen in children with autism. They may be particularly anxious in situations that are busy or overwhelming, um, such as birthday parties, going out to public events where there's lots of people and crowds and noise. They may also be anxious because they have some sort of obsessive and perfectionistic tendencies. So when things are not exactly the way they expect or um, they don't have real control over uh, exactly how things are going to go, they may become anxious. So anxiety is one that we see. Uh, and then with kids who are higher functioning and older, you may see some depression as well as they get frustrated, as they are smart enough to be aware socially of how they're not fitting in, and they want to have friends. I think that's one of the myths, too, that sometimes goes along with autism is that they, they are not interested in being successful socially. Many of those children really are, and they may want to have friendships and want to do the right thing um, with peers. And if that's not going well for them, they may start to get frustrated and discouraged and, uh, and you can see some signs of sadness and, and depression. That does tend to be in the kids who are higher functioning and have that level of awareness of not fitting in with other kids and really caring about that. As you're listing some of these other associated issues, it makes me think how important it is to see a specialist if you have concerns, because a lot of the things you mentioned really alone don't diagnose or can't be used to diagnose autism spectrum disorder, but it may be a fine motor delay or just a sensory delay or... Uh, a sensory processing disorder or a language delay um, standalone. So, I mean, it's very important to have really someone who can look globally at the whole child to make this diagnosis. Absolutely, yes. You can certainly see any of these things in isolation. And um, if your child is showing one of those things, it by no means is an indicator of, of autism. But if you see several... <laughs> the more things that you see that are atypical, certainly the likelihood goes up and the more important it is um, to take a real close look at all aspects of that child's development. I have a, a close friend that was 
currently going through getting her child diagnosed and she kept going back and forth with people around her doctors whether it was just attention deficit disorder or maybe autism spectrum do you often see that those have similar looking profiles yes i'm glad you brought that up um interestingly in the previous edition of the dsm the dsm-4 um they did not allow diagnosing both adhd and autism in the DSM-5, they do. So these books are written by human beings, researchers, clinicians who um, learn more and more as they go along, and they try to update these manuals to reflect the most current research. Um, and so now, yes, indeed, you can have ADHD and autism spectrum disorder, um, or you can have one but not the other. You mentioned earlier a myth about people with autism spectrum disorder that they don't want any friends. You also mentioned that there's common misinformation out there about um, what might cause. Are there any other common misconceptions or myths that we might not have touched on? One that comes to mind is that as soon as somebody hears autism, they think of just like nonverbal, really aggressive children, that they don't see the whole wide spectrum yeah, that's a good point. Um, there's really a wide spectrum for children with autism, and um, some of the sort of old classic um, portrayals of autism, such as the movie Rain Man, which is now quite old, um, but which many of us maybe grew up uh, seeing, um, that's one presentation. Every person with autism is different. And so, yes, there are some children who struggle with a lot of aggressive behavior who may bite themselves, who may have severe tantrums, who may be difficult to manage behaviorally. There are other children with autism who are very sweet, very easygoing, um, do not have those acting out behaviors, but yet they do show the social, the language, the the play um, that is more typical of autism. So, um, so absolutely, having a diagnosis of autism does not necessarily mean that the child has a cognitive delay. Some children are very, very smart and have autism. Um, it doesn't mean that the child is necessarily aggressive or behaviorally difficult. But often when you have difficulty with language, difficulty with social interaction, you feel uncomfortable in your body because of sensory issues. Those are some of the reasons why children may have acting out or frustrated or aggressive behaviors because they are having a hard time. And so it's often there when they do show aggressive behaviors, it's more of a defensive <laughs> uh, way of expressing frustration. Um, and it's not that they're mean-spirited or really trying to... Um, to make life difficult for other people. Are there any great organizations or websites that you often um, have parents go to for more information? There are, uh, and I can mention some of those. Um, one, of course, by the time I see them, they may have already had an MCHAT, but parents should know about the website that's um, uh, mchat.org in which they can fill out a little online questionnaire um, to sort of do a little screening for autism. The website Autism Speaks is a very popular website that has a lot of good information for parents and does a lot of advocacy so that the public knows more about autism. Um, there is the Texas Autism Research and Resource Center. There's the National Institute of Mental Health, the Autism Society of America, um, and the Association for Science in Autism Treatment. Those are some of the reputable 
uh, organizations and websites that I often refer families to to keep up to date on the latest research and reliable information about autism. Yeah, that's great. Without having specific places to go, often we end up turning to like mommy Facebook groups, which is understandable, but then you do the hard work of sifting through what's reputable and what's not and what only worked for your neighbor's neighbor's cousin instead of, you know, what research is showing us that works well. And when you Google autism, I mean, the amount of information out there, it's nice to know more direct, reputable places to go. Yes. And when we were talking before about some of the myths or some of the treatment options, I also want to mention that it's important to to really do your research um, on any treatment that is suggested to you um, to see whether there is research behind it. So for example, some kinds of treatments have really been debunked as being unhelpful um, and and are really a waste of time and money and effort for your child. Um, some of those include chelation therapy, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. There are some kind of far out uh, types of treatments that um, have been promoted um, by people um, without any research backing behind them that the scientific community really uh, recognizes as valid. So you want to be careful of not wasting your precious time and money uh, and energy on treatments that are not well regarded and not well researched. Yeah. And it's understandable. There's so much information out there that it's hard to sift through. And there's so many places that promise quote unquote cures or that this is, you know, guaranteed to make your child better. And every parent wants to make sure that their child is living up to their greatest potential. And so it's really hard on parents to figure out where to go and what to do next. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you can look for is uh, some of the red flags about particular interventions. Often they have um, really huge claims about what they say they can treat and what their results purport to be. So if you see a treatment that says, this cures autism, this cures dyslexia, this cures ADHD, it's, you know, quick and painless, and um, you want to be skeptical. When something says that they are the magic pill that takes care of every possible uh, atypical problem that your child might have, that's kind of a big red flag right there. You also want to know, have they published their results in reputable journals? Do they have any research evidence that really shows in controlled trials that this is an effective treatment? And does the scientific community uh, stand behind that? If it's just one physician or one practitioner or chiropractor or whatever they are um, touting this magical cure, you want to be really careful. I mean, if there was a magic cure-all, wouldn't we all do it? Absolutely. I mean, it would be everywhere. So. so at the end of every episode, we asked our guests that if you had one piece of advice to give to parents, and it can be related to this or it can be whatever advice you'd like, um, what would you give parents and why? That's a great question. Um, I think I – can I do more than one? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think – Certainly, one is to be proactive in watching your child's development and 
um, sharing any concerns, speaking up to your healthcare provider, whether that's your pediatrician, nurse practitioner, whoever you see on a regular basis, speak up and ask questions and share information. Because remember that pediatricians may see 20 or more children every single day, and they're dealing with coughs and colds and ear infections. And um, if you are not speaking up about your child, some things might get missed. So you definitely want to speak up proactively and be persistent. If someone's not taking your concerns seriously, um, ask for a referral. Um, early childhood intervention is um, some uh, is a service that you can always access for children who are between the ages of birth and three years old. Once they turn 36 months, the school district is responsible for evaluating them. Um, but between birth and three, Early childhood intervention is um, is one way that parents can um, have their child evaluated, even if perhaps their pediatrician or others are telling them it's not necessary. Um, and I would say that that advocacy um, continues once you do have a diagnosis for your child, that you are the person as the parent or the grandparent who loves and cares and is invested in your child more than anybody else. And so while you may have fabulous speech therapists or ABA therapists or pediatrician, you may end up being sort of the case manager for your child who coordinates everything and makes sure that people are talking to each other, that your child is getting to their therapy appointments, that um, you are asking good questions to make sure that you know um, what your child is working on in therapy, and what kind of progress they're making. And what we do know is that the more engaged and involved parents are, the more you put into working with your child and making sure they're getting the services that they need, the better the outcomes, the better the likelihood that your child will make good progress. That's great advice. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk with you today. Pleasure to talk with you too. Thank you for listening to the Unbabbled Podcast. For more information on today's episode, please see our episode description. For more information on the Parish School, visit parishschool.org. And if you're not already, don't forget to subscribe to the Unbabbled Podcast on your app of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave a rating and review. A special thank you to Stig Daniels, Amy Tanner, Amanda Arnold, and Stella Limwell for their hard work behind the scenes. Thanks again for listening.